We'll be reading from Psalm uh, 51, verses 10 through 17, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and from my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Please pray with me. Lord, we long for holiness. We long to make decisions that conform to your word and your will, and to be consistently victorious over the sin in our lives, to not harm or undermine our relationship with you and with others, or our testimony by the sin in our lives. Thank you, Father, that for those in Christ, our justification is ever secure, and that when you see us, you see the perfect righteousness of your Son. Create in us a broken and contrite heart that is pleasing to you and that finds its hope in the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, not our own strength. Bless now Pastor Ryan as he preaches and do a work in every heart and mind here today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn in it to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. While turning there, let me ask you this question. In your Christian life, in your walk with the Lord, have you ever had a time where you felt far from the Lord? Maybe you were clearly living in sin, not wanting to give it up. If you've grown up in the church and experienced in some measure what I'm describing, they might often use this super theological term called backslidden to describe where you were. Now, I'm not trying to make a case about how to properly understand backslidden. I have thoughts, of course, but you were, in that season, far from the Lord. But then, by the grace of God, through the Word of God, you repent, you turn back. What was that experience like? Can you think back to it even now? Maybe even now you're here and you're in this room and you are far from the Lord. You're in the midst of that season right now, and you're desiring something more. You're desiring to turn back. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we see a small picture of what that looks like after a long season of idolatry to turn back to the Lord. We have been steadily working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and we're at a critical section of the book right before we see the rise of Israel's first king. Now, if I could just say this, what's important to keep in mind as we are studying this is this book's closeness with the books of Judges and Ruth. Don't divorce Judges and Ruth from 1 Samuel. The context is the same throughout them. It's just progressing on in time. Sometimes when we read our Bibles, we can go through a book and we can finish it and we can think, okay, that period of history is done and I'm going to open up something else and we don't really understand how the two connect. But the Bible has one main storyline of redemption written across the 66 books. It's tying in all of it, and it's moving somewhere. And it's important to know where 
and how it is moving. And so it's important to know and to remember 1 Samuel's closeness with Judges and Ruth. These books are building off of one another. They're describing this common time frame and period, and they're moving us to the coming Davidic king. Everything is pointing forward to that. So this morning we are in chapter 7, but there's a slight mystery here. There's a slight question that the text begs. Where in the world has Samuel been? Where has this book's namesake been? If you remember from the beginning chapters of the book, you can even look over at them right now, we saw the Lord calling Samuel in the middle of the night. And he grows and he matures. And at the end of chapter 3, it says that all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was an established prophet of the Lord. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, it simply says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And then he's off. He's out of the picture. And you're kind of left wondering, where is he? I think this is intentional from the writer. We should be wondering, if there's a clear prophet of the Lord, then where is he? Where has he gone? Because in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and all the drama with the Ark of the Covenant and the Philistines, surely Samuel would have had something to say. Well, I think he did. We're going to see that in just a moment. But much like Samuel's birth at the beginning of the book was a sign of grace to Israel, especially after Eli and his sons, so here he is brought back to bring new mercies to God's people. But let me say this. At this point in redemptive history, the king is coming. It is all pointing forward to him. One that the people want, we'll see that with Saul, and then one that is after God's own heart, we'll see that with David. And so Samuel serves to close out this section of Israel's history. In a way, he is the last of the judges. We'll even see some similar themes and patterns in this chapter that we looked at many times in Judges. And as serving as the last of the judges, thankfully, he does this in a new and a promising way. So Samuel serves as the bookend to the judges. That's how you should think about him, who are all pointing forward to someone greater. So keep that backdrop in mind as we study today's passage. If you remember last week with Pastor Jeff's sermon, the Philistines recognized that they had royally messed up. They can't have the Ark of the Covenant. It belongs to God's people. So they send it back with this weird guilt offering, and then some foolish Israelites seek to look at or in the Ark, and the Lord kills them. You cannot approach a holy God on your own terms, but only on His But then notice, if you have your Bibles open, notice this last line at the end of chapter 6, that the men of Beth Shemesh, where the 70 died, notice what they say. Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? Who is able to stand before the Lord? In our sin, as the rest of Scripture tells us, that is none of us. That is none of us. We need an intercessor. We need a mediator, someone to go between us and God. And in chapter 7, we will see how Samuel does just that for God's people. Three points this morning for us to consider from this text. And the first is this, repentance. Repentance. Look with me at chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 
And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Point number one, repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin and by faith trusting in God. It is turning from your sin and by faith trusting in God. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have experienced exactly what I am talking about. Israel finds itself over the course of this 20 years and probably longer when you include the events of uh, chapters 4 through 6 of being in a state of sin once more. Yet, I think Samuel is preaching. When we left Samuel at the end of chapter 3, first verse of chapter 4, he's known as a prophet of God and all Israel recognized him as such. And so he is preaching. He's teaching. He's preaching for 20 years and there is no response. I find this so encouraging as a young pastor, where it is easy to think, you just got to do this to get them to listen, or you just got to do that to get them to respond. But no, it's the Word of God, brought about by the Spirit of God, that produces the people of God. 20 years, Samuel is doing the Lord's work with no response from the people until there is Like Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sower or 1 Corinthians 3, teach us we are called to be faithful, watering, planting, watering, planting, watering, planting, and looking to God in his perfect timing to give the growth. And here he does. Because at the end of verse 2, we read that all Israel lamented after the Lord. They turned back. The root of that word implies a deep, heartfelt groaning or, or wailing. This is a national repentance that is coming about. God, by his spirit, is moving amongst his people as his word is going forth so that they long for the Lord in a more tangible way. They are coming back to their true God, Yahweh. That's what happens when Samuel speaks in verse 3. The word of the Lord goes forth and the people listen. So after three chapters almost of Samuel gone from the scene, God's grace towards Israel comes once again to his people. They lament, and Samuel responds to them, and he tells them what to do. He directs their repentance as a prophet of God. So there's two things that I want to highlight about this repentance that we need to see in the text. And the first is this. It is God-focused. It is God-focused. Samuel says in those opening verses, If you are returning to Yahweh... A moment later, he says, direct your heart to Yahweh and serve him only. A right repentance, friends, is focused on God. Don't get me wrong, an awareness of sin for sure brings about this repentance, an awareness of what they have done, but more important, it is to whom they have done it. They have forsaken their covenant God. They have turned to idols. They have betrayed him above all. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba. It's actually in the next book of Samuel. We read in that story that David is at home at the time when kings go out to war. Bathsheba is bathing on the roof. It's a normal thing. 
And David wrongly takes another man's wife and he sleeps with her. And then the natural result is that she becomes pregnant. So she tells David, what does he do? Well, he sends her husband to the front line so that he can die. Here is a precursor to what I said, where everything is moving forward to the coming king. But here's a precursor of him. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. But in our scriptures, we also read that he's a man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 51, what we read from Justin read for our scripture reading, it's David's psalm of repentance about that specific situation. Let me read to you earlier, verses 3 through 4 in that psalm. David says this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Against you, you only, David can say. Our rational minds, our Western minds don't like to hear that. Against you only, David, you clearly sinned against Bathsheba. You clearly had a man murdered in Uriah. What are you saying? Well, David's not blind to what we were saying. Notice what he just said in verse 3. For I know my transgression. I know my sins. They're ever before me. He knows what he did to those people. But ultimately, he knows that his sin is first and foremost against God. It's a grievous offense against him. Why is that? Because the divide that happened between God and man in creation in Genesis 3 because of sin, it is catastrophic. I think sometimes we underplay the severity of sin. We don't understand the separation that has happened. He knows, David knows, that ultimately all sin goes against a holy and perfect God. It is an affront to who he fundamentally is. God, as the sovereign ruler over all, as our king, he sets the rules. He tells us what is righteous and what is not. And therefore, sin goes against all that he is and stands for. David has an understanding of that. And so in 1 Samuel 7, in this repentance, God is the focus. Return to him, Samuel can say. Direct your heart to him. Serve him. Repentance is always God-focused first and foremost because ultimately that is who our sin is against. And so applying this, we must ask ourselves, is this how I think of repentance? Do I think of my severity and of my sin before a holy God? Or do we take it lightly? To the unbeliever here, the one maybe checking out Christianity this morning or wondering what this church thing is all about, or maybe a friend invited you and they told you that they're going to go to coffee, but suddenly you find yourself here. Welcome. We are glad that you are here. It's the best place for you to be on a Sunday morning. And here I am talking about the need for us to recognize our sin, for us to recognize our wrongdoing before God, and maybe you aren't even sure that there is a God. Well, this idea of sinning and repentance, it implies a standard. And as I said earlier, it implies that someone tells us what is righteous and what is not, what is good and what is not. It means that there's a mark to hit and that we have missed that mark. So let me leave you with this. If you don't believe that there's a God, goodness, these flies. If you don't believe that there's a God, if you don't believe that there's a God, where does your standard come from? Where does your standard of morality come from, of your standard of right and wrong? Where does society's standard come from? When we say that we have sinned, 
We understand that we have broken God's law, that we have done that which he said not to do or failed to do that which he said to do. Think about where that idea of morality and a standard even comes from. Christ community, may we be a church who, like David, recognizes that our sins are ultimately against God and therefore our repentance must first and foremost be God-focused. Fundamentally, foundationally, we have sinned against a holy God. And as we will see, may that drive us all the more to avail ourselves of the grace and the mercy of God that he has shown us in his son, Jesus Christ. Second subpoint: it is specific. It is specific. This repentance is specific. Notice Samuel's directing of the people's repentance. This isn't some vague sense of repentance. God forgive me for I have sinned. Nor is Samuel wanting to be swayed by any emotional response. How often has Israel wanted deliverance before? We saw this in Judges, right? How often were they crying out to him, yet not truly meaning it, because we saw how they acted afterwards. No, Samuel knows that tearful eyes and wet cheeks are not the answer. The people must move beyond that. They must wrestle specifically with the sin that entangles them. And so he doesn't treat their wounds here with a sponge, but with a scalpel. He's going to cut it out. So Samuel, as the prophet and the priest, he says, no, this is your sin. You have gone after idols. You have whored yourself. Therefore, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth and serve the one true God. Like we saw in Judges, Israel, and we said this time and time again, had become Canaanized. And this was most noticeable in their worship, in their idolatry. This Canaanite religious worship had such a stronghold amongst Israel. If you're a student of Scripture, you'll notice that time and time again, coming back to these idols. And why is that? Ultimately, I think it's because it combined sex with worship. Baal worship and Ashtaroth worship was prevalent. You have a male and a female deity that through sexual intercourse provides fertility via rain, and that's how your crops can grow more and more. So you have cultic priests and prostitutes that would be engaged in either temple in order that people might, get to do the, might have the uh, gods to do their bidding. And it has entangled Israel. Liturgy and orgy combined, the chapel and the brothel in one place. What's not to like? So Samuel says, this gross sin, this thing you try to do alongside serving Yahweh, or this thing you don't want your neighbors to know about as you sneak off, this is what I'm calling out. Show your repentance and how you deal with the specifics of your sin. And Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God, but he will not abide the worship of another. Jealousy is just the flip side of love. We've seen that time and time again, and the same is true for us today. Do not think that Jesus has laxed the standards of our devotion. Christianity is monotheistic, one God alone. And our Lord Jesus picks up this Old Testament teaching when he says in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus knows it is a wholehearted, undivided allegiance that must take place. And so this repentance isn't superficial. A superficial repentance, hear me here, friends. A superficial repentance, and we've all struggled with this if we're being serious. A superficial repentance has this idea, this little thought in the back of our minds that maybe we can return to that sin down the road. Maybe we'll deal with it now, but we'll always leave that door a little bit cracked. No, that's just giving lip service. 
That's no true heart change. But a supernatural repentance that is brought about by the Spirit of God, that is, we see here as Israel is turning back to Yahweh, this repentance is specific. So I trust in a room this size that God, by his Spirit, will uh, convict if needed where some of us need to be more specific in our repentance in order to truly repent, to not keep flirting with sin. And there are times, though, if we're being honest, where we really like to save face. We really like to use generalities rather than give the more concrete example. It's always easier to say, I'm struggling, than I've been lusting after someone who's not my spouse. It's always easier to say, I'm struggling, than I often eat like a glutton and I like to waste my time vegging out on TV and social media. It's always easier to say I'm struggling than I often covet material things that I don't have and I'm upset with what God has given me in life. Our repentance must be specific or we will keep playing games with sin. Second thing we see in our passage this morning is testing and deliverance. Testing and deliverance. Notice here in a moment what comes after repentance. Testing in a way for Israel. This is true for you, and this is true for I in the Christian life today. You will be attacked with renewed vigor when repentance takes place because Satan hates to see you overcome any sin. He wants to keep you entangled. And here, Israel has an opportunity to forsake that repentance like they've done time and time again, yet they don't. Look with me back at 1 Samuel 7, starting in verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. The Philistines hear noise, and they come running. They come to see what Israel is doing, and then they decide to attack. And notice there Israel's testing. They are afraid. They are fearful of the Philistines and their might. Like I said, attacks come upon true repentance. And in their fear, in the past, as we've seen in Judges, they've taken matters into their own hands. They have sought to provide their own deliverance. They have thought, I know what's best here. And every time it ended in utter failure. So here, hopefully, learning from their past, they turn to the Lord. Simply put, like the Israelites our initial emotional response might not be the right one. Even further, friends, it could be sin. How many times have the Israelites been scared of enemies, enemies before? And in that emotion, as I said, they turn to something other than God. In our anger, in our sorrow, in our confusion, in all things, let us guard against looking to ourselves for the answer instead of looking to our God. Emotions are fine. Hear me here. Emotions are fine, but emotions that lead you to sin are not. So Israel is tested after their repentance. They are scared. And again, in their fear, they have often acted out in sin. But here they don't. And deliverance comes. 
Now that Samuel is back, they talk to the prophet of God. They talk to God's designated person. So briefly, just two more subpoints for you that I want to highlight underneath point number two. And the first is this, mercy. Mercy. Samuel hears the people cry out to him. And so he offers the lamb as a whole burnt offering. And as the Philistines draw near to attack, God thunders against them. He confuses them. He delivers his people. They cast themselves upon divine omnipotence, upon omnipotent mercy. Israel has no strength here. Hopefully you're seeing this. Israel has no strength and they know it. The Philistines are stronger. Israel's been engaged in idolatry for 20 plus years and they know what has happened in the past when they have turned to those idols for deliverance. They have no strength here and they know it. So what do they do? They throw themselves at the mercy of God. They cry out for Yahweh who is slow to anger and abounding in love to rescue them and he does. Friends, this is a small picture of what you and I have experienced in salvation. Dead in our sins, loving the things of the world more than we have loved God, yet God in his mercy through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, he saves you and I. That same omnipotent mercy that was at work here in 1 Samuel 7 is at work today, calling sinners and people of all to repent and turn to Christ. Just as a lamb was offered up for Israel here, So the spotless lamb has been offered up for his saints. God in his mercy and throughout the Old Testament was providing signpost after signpost, marker after marker to point forward to the Messiah, to point forward to what is to come. This is what you and I now look back on as we look back to the cross and praise God for the finished work of Jesus Christ. So don't be blind to this. Don't have a hardened heart towards the mercy of God. Sometimes the Lord will take things from us in order that we might learn to rely on him all the more. Do you recognize that? Or do you simply lament that which was, that which what was taken? Don't have a hardened heart towards the mercy of God. You here, my friend, who have been playing church far too long, Your exterior is perfect, but your heart is far from the Lord. Hiding a life of sin, cast yourself upon the mercy of God. That is your only hope. And that was Israel's only hope. In Christ, his mercy towards you is calling. Do not succumb to the temptation to continue to rely upon your works or your standing before God. Continuing to think that just doing more good than bad is enough. It's not. It's not. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to omnipotent mercy and place your faith in the only one that can save you. Remarkably, Israel got it. They learned of it here. After all that period of judges, they learn it. They turn to God and through Samuel, they seek to pray to the only one that can deliver them. And the second thing that we see in this deliverance is the role of a mediator. The role of a mediator. Israel needed a mediator. If you know your Bible well at all, you'll know that God uses a mediator to go between him and his people. You think of Moses or Samuel here, David, the prophets, it's nonstop. A God-appointed person to go between us and God. And although we did not hear from him for some time, Samuel comes back and he's doing the Lord's work. He intercedes for the people of God. He goes between, between God and them and he pleads their case. Isn't this in many ways striking from all those failed judges before. 
judges who, although they were blessed by God's Spirit, and we talked about that, they often failed to pray to God for deliverance, but instead are known for taking matters into their own hands. But here, the last of the judges, pointing forward to the coming Davidic king, models what the mediator, the intercessor, is to do. He prays to God that he would act. And as the last judge, Samuel makes war via prayer. As we've already seen, he extols the mercy of God, and he trusts that God will work. So Samuel, in his prophetic role, has called the people to repentance, and now in his priestly role, he intercedes for them via sacrifice and prayer. Friends, as important as Samuel is, and we're going to be looking at this time and time again, as important as Samuel is, he is pointing forward to someone else. Samuel is functioning as a prophet and a priest and a judge, but he points forward to the perfect prophet, priest, and king. You see, Samuel's intercession, his sacrifice, his prayer is fitting for this occasion in 1 Samuel chapter 7, but it has no lasting effect on you and I. The people would sin again eventually. They would need another sacrifice, another mediator down the road. But that is not so with the sacrifice and the prayers of Christ our great mediator. Just as Samuel is functioning as a priest for the people, so he points forward to our great high priest who once and for all time has made the perfect sacrifice for us. And not only that, he prays for us. He's interceding for us. Look with me at Luke chapter 22. Jesus is talking to to Peter, Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's a prayer that we know came to be true for Peter. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, Christ our risen Lord is interceding for us today interceding for you right now in all the problems you're facing and all the things in the back of your mind that you're trying not to think about. He's able to sympathize with you right now where you are. Problems concerning marriage or family or money or your lack of faith, your doubt, your discipline, your love, your grace. He intercedes that you might overcome in the midst of those things that you're struggling with, of where you find yourself lacking in this season. And brothers and sisters, his prayers are effectual. That means they're effective. They work. We in our Christian life, we rely on the prayers of another whose prayers are always effectual. Be encouraged this morning at the mercy of God shown toward you through our great mediator, Jesus Christ. Point number three, remembrance. Remembrance. We've seen repentance, seen deliverance, and now remembrance. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. 
The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel, Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Repentance takes place. Deliverance has come. And now in the wake of Israel's defeat of the Philistines, Samuel sets up this monument of remembrance to the Lord. He calls it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And he explains why he does it. He says, till now the Lord has helped us. Obviously, Samuel is commemorating what God has done for them most recently here in chapter 7 and the defeat of the Philistines, but I think even more so, he's commemorating and reflecting on God's dealings with Israel throughout all of their history. He's mindful of God's covenant faithfulness to a people who keep forsaking the covenant. And that till now is the key. Until now, or up until now, your translation might say, Samuel isn't saying that the Lord won't help keep them in the future, but he's remembering all that's happened in that until now. He's remembering God calling their forefather Abraham out of paganism to come and worship the one true God. He's remembering plague after plague that was delivered like a hammer to Egypt so that Pharaoh would let God's people go. He's remembering God preserving them in the wilderness and aiding them in the conquest. He's remembering time and time again God's covenant faithfulness. Till now. And even in the immediate context, think back to what the Israelites had experienced so recently. In chapter 4, they were routed by these Philistines right near where this stone was set up. The memories of their fellow Israelites that had lost their lives. The memory of the ark being taken by the Philistines and going off into the distance. But this stone of help, this rock of help, reminds them that the Lord, even in the midst of their punishment, had not abandoned them. He was still helping. How was he helping in their defeats? How is it helping when it doesn't feel like life is going well for you? How is it helping when the Philistines win and Israel has sorrow? Because those losses had come in the midst of their sins. And it is in the sorrow of sin that we often recognize the error of our ways. And God uses that to drive us all the more to him. So how was God helping them? He was helping them to know their sins. And helping them to know the bitter fruit and woeful punishment of sin. When Samuel says, till now, the links of that chain The links of what they're remembering are not all mercies, but also chastisements. The Lord will use both to draw us to himself. From Ichabod to Ebenezer, the Lord was with them till now. Samuel then, in this moment, in this setting up of this Ebenezer monument, he seeks to remind Israel of God's mercies from the past and from the present. They are to show gratitude. They are to remember in gratitude because gratitude is a boost to faithfulness. Your gratitude to God in life is a boost to your faithfulness. You guys remember that book study we did a long time ago, the book of Romans, right? We've been in the Old Testament for a while. Remember at the beginning in Romans 1, that vice list where Paul is just extolling what the Gentiles have done? Do you remember how he characterizes it at the very beginning? He says this, they did not honor nor give thanks to God. And then vice after vice comes. Ingratitude 
for what God has done or given leads to calloused hearts that turn away from God and turn to their own selves for gratification. We turn to what we love and God gives us over to it. Samuel doesn't want that for Israel. He wants grateful hearts that despite the failings, they look to God's grace and mercy and they know that he has never abandoned nor forsaken them. He is with them. They must remember. I wonder, friends, how well you remember the acts of God in your own life. Many of us who have been following the Lord for some time have prayed so hard in the past that God would provide an answer. We have prayed so hard in the past that God would do something, that he would help us in our moment of need, that he would guide us on a decision, that he would provide for us financially, and in his perfect timing, he does. But over time, we forget. We don't operate in light of that remembrance. We fail to practice Christian remembrance. Sometimes our hearts can be ungrateful for what has happened in the past because we are so focused on our problems in the present. We were so desperate that God would answer. And now it's been a few months later or a few years later, and we find ourselves desperate for another answer. And so rather than remembering his faithful mercy to us over the years, his faithfulness towards us, we are quick to look elsewhere. My friends, remember the wonderful works of God in your life. Remember them. Tell them to others. In the life of this church, even think of the wonderful works of God. Think back of God's faithfulness to Christ's community over the years. It's encouraging to hear from you who have been here 20, 30, 40 years, who have weathered the storms of this church. That's encouraging. Be quick, though, in the life of this church, in the life of your friends in this church, to be quick to share how God has worked in your life over the years. Remember the Ebenezer's. Remember those moments of help that the Lord provided when you thought that all hope was lost and he came through just in the right time. Till now, the text says, until now, you and I can say as well. As we reflect over our lives, by the grace of God, we are where we are, by grace alone. And if that's for you right now in a really, really tough spot, you feel the walls closing in, you feel the season in the valley of despair, and you feel that despair closing in because you are pressed to the limit, would you remember now his faithfulness to you? You are wondering in your heart, can you still trust God to work? Well, let God, through his word and by his spirit, encourage you this morning from 1 Samuel. Till now, the Lord has helped us. Till now, the Lord has helped us. Up to this point, he has been with us. Till now, the Lord has helped you. Up to this point, he has been with you. And day by day, you let that be your refrain. You meditate on it. Till now, the Lord is with me. Till now, the Lord has helped me. Day by day. We don't know what the future holds, but day after day, till now, the Lord has helped us. I love what one writer says. He says, we stand in the present, but dwell in the past in order that we can be steadfast for the future. We stand in the present, we remember the past, we remember God's covenant faithful to, faithfulness to us in order that we can be steadfast for the future and what might come. Till now the Lord has helped us. And friends, where has he helped us the most? He's been helped us the most at the cross. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How has God graciously and mercifully helped us? By not sparing his own son. By providing the perfect sacrifice. 
by pouring out his wrath on him instead of you and I. Till now, the Lord has helped us. Let us continue to look to the cross and be reminded of that, that till now he has helped us, and every day he will continue to do so. Will you pray with me? Father, we as your people are gathered here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we desire, Father, to sit under your word, to be people of the word who are shaped by it. So would you now, by your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts and our minds. Father, help us to see in 1 Samuel 7 the need for repentance, the God-focused repentance that is evident, the specifics of it as well. Help us to not deal lightly with sin. Help us to know, for, know it for what it is, ultimately an affront to you, you foremost. But Father, help us to know that you are the God who provides deliverance, that your mercy and your grace are boundless, and you have provided that for us so faithfully, so well, in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. May the person here who does not know you cast themselves upon omnipotent mercy. They might look to you in their moment of need. And Father, help us to be a church and a people who practices Christian remembrance, who can be so desperate in prayer that you would answer and so quick to forget down the road. Let, us not, let that not be true of us. We love you. We praise you. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.